Amen. Good morning, Walk Church. How's everyone doing this morning? All right. Can you believe it is Christmas time already? Man, God is good. I just love this time of year. Um, listen, if, if, you're, if you're visiting here this morning, I just, I just want to take another moment again uh, and welcome you. We're really, really glad that you're here. I'm really happy to see everyone here this morning. My name is Mike Bussey, and I'm on the, the leadership team here at Walk Church. And Pastor Hyden's actually out of town this morning. He's at a a church plant that we actually support here right out of Walk Church. It's in Portland, Oregon. It's called Remedy City Church. And he just wanted me to let you know this morning that he's really sorry that he couldn't be here. Uh, but uh, by God's grace, God willing, he will be back next week. Uh, so let's just go ahead and remember to keep him and, and Nina and the kids in prayer as they make their way back to Las Vegas. I believe they're, they're coming back tonight. Amen? All right. Well, last week we started a new series on Christmas. It's called The Joy of Christmas. And last week, uh, Pastor Hyden preached a message on the very beginning of the Christmas story from the perspective of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we remember that Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years, they, in their old age. They were, um, uh, Elizabeth was barren. She had no children. And uh, they had prayed many years ago that God would bless them with a child, but uh, to no avail. And one day, Zechariah was serving in the temple, and the Bible tells us that he was a righteous man, that he was faithfully serving there, and people were outside praying, and then the Bible says that an angel showed up and said, Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. And so Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist, who would go and prepare the way for Jesus by turning the hearts of the people back to God, and there was great joy surrounding his miraculous conception and his birth. And so last week, we said that righteous living, uh, faithful serving, and people praying was a recipe for a miracle, right? And that brought great joy. Uh, today, I want to look at the Christmas story from a slightly different perspective. What I'd like to do is I would like to look at the Christmas story, and specifically the joy of Christmas, from the perspective of heaven. And uh, when we think about Christ the Christmas story, we're, we're thinking about God himself Becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ, coming to this earth in order to redeem us, right? Jesus came to save you. He came to save me. That's the reason why he came. So let's go ahead and look at that this morning from, from the viewpoint of heaven. If you have your Bibles today, go ahead and open them up to Philippians chapter 2. It's in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And since it's Jesus that we're celebrating at Christmas, I was studying world leaders this week. And I, I remembered a, a time that I had gone to go visit another church in California, and I was actually on my way back to Las Vegas, and we were just about 30 minutes away from the airport, and the pilot came on the radio, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it appears that the President of the United States has decided to land his airplane at McCarran International Airport, and as a result, they have shut down all of the airspace around the city. And so, as much as we would love to take you to your destination, we're going to have to land the plane at the Laughlin Bullhead City International Airport. Not to worry, he said. There's plenty of rental cars there, and it's only about an hour and a half drive back to Las Vegas. <laughs> and I thought to myself, who does this guy think he is? I mean, he's going to close down an entire airport just because he's landing there? What, what do he do, park his plane on the runway? What does he think we're going to land on him? I mean, it was crazy. And, but you know what, then I remembered and I started to realize, I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, he's the president, right? He's the president of the United States of America. He is the leader of the free world. 
And then I started to feel a little pride, and I was like, man, that's pretty awesome. The president of the United States is coming to my city, man. He's coming to Las Vegas. That's pretty cool. You know what? I'm all right with landing in Bullhead City if we need to, so we'll, we'll do that. You know, and, and I, just, I just thought to myself, man, this is amazing that his security team wields this much power, that just because he's going to be in a city, they shut down the entire airport. I mean, isn't that incredible? And you know, when the president flies, you know, he flies in style. He, he flies on a plane called Air Force One. Have you ever seen it before? <laughs> Not those Air Force Ones, right? No, yeah, he flies on that Air Force One. Yeah, he flies on that. And by the way, this is a really impressive plane. He doesn't ha just have one, he has two, right? He has a spare. And on this plane, this plane has 87 telephones. This plane has 17 flat screen TVs, and it has a kitchen that can feed 100 of his closest friends. And if he gets tired, it has a master bedroom where he can go and, and kind of kick back and, and take a nap, you know, just in case he gets tired of, of people flying him around and, and you know, serving dinner to him. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but this is a really impressive plane. This plane is meant to be intimidating. When this plane shows up, it's as high as a six-story building. This is an impressive plane. This plane flies high, and this plane flies fast. Now, I, I, this is a true story. When, when, the, when the airliners slammed into the World Trade Center on September the 11th, 2001, the Secret Service grabbed President Bush, they put him on Air Force One, and they flew up in the air. That's protocol when the country's attacked. And I don't, I don't know how high they flew. It's classified, but I can tell you it's a lot higher than 30,000 feet. And let me tell you something, this airplane was flying so fast that these F-16 fighter jets that were escorting Air Force One actually had to call the pilot of Air Force One and they asked, had to ask him to slow the plane down because they were having a hard time keeping up. This is an impressive plane. It's 4,000 square feet of living space. They call it the three-storied flying oval office. It cost taxpayers $206,000 for every hour that this plane is in flight. And when the president goes somewhere, he has a C-130 military cargo plane that actually picks up his presidential limousine and meets him there ahead of time so he can have a limousine to ride around in when he gets there. By the way, this thing's impressive too. It's called the Beast. <laughs> That's a great name for it. It's got bulletproof tires, bulletproof glass, blast-proof doors, and it has a mini fridge with the president's blood type inside just in case he needs some medical assistance. And you know what? I feel like that's a good thing. You know what I'm saying? I don't want the president waiting in line for his rental car when he gets somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's the president. Of course, we are here this morning, and we celebrate and we worship a world leader who is far greater than any president. That's right. I knew I was in the right church. The majesty of Christ is infinitely greater than any world leader, although... His arrival on planet Earth some 2,000 years ago might not give you that impression. I mean, he didn't come with all the, the trappings of luxury that you might expect from a world leader. I mean, think about it for a second. He was born in a feeding trough to an unwed teenage mother, surrounded not by the Secret Service, but by animals. He was born in a dusty little town called Nazareth. People actually in the Bible, they said, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? He said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, much less a flying oval office or a majestic white house. And you might think, think to yourself, well, 
you know what, that's, that's just how Jesus is. You know, Jesus is just a humble kind of a guy. You know, that's just how he rolls. You know, he doesn't care about all that luxury and stuff like that. And can I just tell you that if you think that this morning, you're totally wrong. You're totally wrong. Jesus didn't show up in a humble abode, in, in a humble situation, to be, for, to be born in a feeding trough because, you know, that's just how he rolls. Listen, the son of God that is described for us hundreds of years before his birth and certainly in all of the prophecies concerning his second coming show us that, that this is a person of the Godhead who is used to and clearly accepts the most incredible extravagance that you could ever imagine. He's surrounded not by secret service but by angels. And let me tell you something, these angels that he's surrounded with are so impressive that if you were to see one of these angels, if they were to walk in the door this morning, if they could even fit in this building, you would set your eyes upon these angels and you would be tempted to fall down and worship these angels. I promise you would. That's what the Apostle John tried to do in the book of Revelation. These are impressive beings. And let me tell you what, these cherubim, as they're called, they're called the burning ones, right? They're just flaming angels and they fly around the throne of Jesus Christ, and here's what they say, holy, holy, holy. And with two wings, they cover their feet because even though they're not touching the ground, they realize that it's sacred. With two wings, they fly because they're ready to be dispatched at a moment's notice to carry out his every command. And with two wings, they cover their eyes because Jesus is too holy and majestic and beautiful to even set eyes upon I mean, you want to talk about presidential arrivals, right? You want to talk about glory. His arrivals are accompanied by incredible glory. So why then would he be born in a manger, in a feeding trough, and not even have a place to lay his head? That, that's, that's the question that I really want us to think about this morning. This was in every regard the greatest demotion that you could ever imagine, right? That the God of the universe, who spoke the universe into existence, would put on human flesh. We call it the incarnation, right? And, and that's, that's, a real, that's a big fancy Bible word, but we already know what it means because when we go and we eat Mexican food after church today, we're going to order a burrito con carne, right? We want our burrito with meat in it. And, and, and here's what the word incarnation it means. It literally means that God put on human flesh. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and that is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And so as we read our text, I trust that you're in Philippians chapter 2. I want to look at it from three different angles. Here's what I want to do. Number one, I want to consider what it cost for God to become a man. I want to celebrate the joy of Christmas by considering what it cost. Next, I want to appreciate what it accomplished, and finally, I want to note how it was rewarded. All right? So if you're there, say, I'm there. there. If you're ready, say, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> All right, here we go. Starting in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the church that he planted in Philippi, much like Walk Church. He's sitting inside the walls of a Roman prison, and he writes this letter, and here's the great concern on his heart. He wants the people at the church of Philippi to have the same mind that Jesus had. Okay, so let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 5. Here's what it says. It says, Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's go to the, to the Lord in, in prayer and ask him for help this morning. Father, we bow before you now. God, we humble ourselves underneath your word. Father, we realize that we are standing on holy ground this morning. As we consider the incarnation, God, the fact that you put on human flesh, that you came from heaven to save us, that you were born as a child. God, we know that it was at great cost to yourself. So, Father, would you help us this morning by sending your spirit to be our teacher. Would you shine your light on this text, God, and would you illuminate its truths, God, so that we can understand. Open the eyes of our hearts, Father, that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Father, we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's just go ahead and spend a little time this morning recognizing what a great and costly thing this was. That, God, that God's son would be born in a manger. Listen, God saw that we had a need that we couldn't meet, and so God met our need. God sent his son, and Jesus loved you enough that he willingly came down to be born as a man and to die on a cross for our sins. So let's do this. Let's celebrate Christmas this morning by, first of all, considering what it cost. Let's consider what it costs. Back to verses 5 and 6. Here's what it says. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen, I know that we've just preached nine sermons on uh, our Imitate series, where, where we're constantly being called to imitate God and to imitate Jesus. And it seems like we just can't get away from it, right? Every time we turn around, the Bible is asking us to imitate Jesus Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What's the big deal with Jesus? Well, verse 6 who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Listen, we are talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who has eternally existed in the very form of God. That's who he is. And I hate to do this this morning, but I do need to teach you two Greek words. Is that okay? Are you guys, are you guys all right with, with that? Okay. All right, let's, let's talk about this word form for a second. It's actually the word morphe. When it says that he existed in the form of God, here's what it means. It means the nature or the character of something with emphasis upon both the internal and the external form. It's nature, character. Here's how they translate Philippians 2.7. It says he has always had the very nature of God. God has eternally existed. This is his essential nature. He, this is his divine makeup. This is who he is. He has always existed in God, as God. He is equal with the Father. That's who he is. That is his nature. That is the essence of his being. How many people um, have heard that, 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 the, that the term or the name, the word of God, that's another name for Jesus? Have you heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Jesus' name is the word of God. And so in John chapter 1, verse 1, here's what it says. It says, in the beginning was the word. Right? And here's what that's saying. That's saying that in the beginning, before anything was ever created, Jesus Christ was there. He was already in the beginning. And here's what it says. It says, and the word was with God. The word was with God. This word with right here, it means this. 
It means that he was toward God. It literally means that he was face to face with God. So he was already there in the beginning. He was face to face with God. And just in case there's any doubt still, here's how John finishes it. He says, and the word was God. That's who he is. He created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that exists. And let me tell you this. There are incredible rights and privileges and glory and exaltation that come with being God, right? And, 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 and he possessed this great glory. And here's what it says. It says that he, in, verse, um, in this verse, it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, to grasp something can mean two things. Number one, it can mean this. It can mean that, that you want something that you don't have. You want all the rights and the privileges and the glory that come along with being God, but they're not yours, and you're grasping for them because you want them. Right? And that would be a great picture of what Satan wanted. He wanted to exalt himself above God's throne. He wanted to be God. He wanted what he didn't have. Jesus, on the other hand, has eternally existed as God. He possesses all the rights and privileges and glory that come along with being God because that's who he is. And so Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be held on to because he loved you. He loved you enough to say, I'm willing to let go of the rights and the privileges and the glory that come along with being God. And so he was willing to come and save us. It literally means that he did not count the being equal with God as a thing to be held onto. So what did he do? The Bible says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So what did he empty himself of? Well, we know that he didn't empty himself of his deity, right? The fact that he's God, because that is his essential nature. That is his, the nature of who he is. So what did he empty himself of? Well, we could say, first of all, that when he stepped down out of heaven, he emptied himself by disrobing from his glory. He, he disrobed of his glory. He disrobed, he disrobed himself of the divine rights and the privileges that come with being God. He disrobed himself of the authority... Not the authority, but, the, but, the, but his divine prerogatives, you could say, to command armies of angels. And he temporarily deprived himself of that face-to-face -face relationship with the Father. So you could say that he emptied himself. That's what he did. That's, that's what he emptied himself of. He disrobed of his glory. He emptied himself into a human body. I think it's a better way to understand this, really, is not to say that he emptied himself of something, but he emptied himself into something. Right? He took on human flesh. He took his glory and his nature of who he was. He put on a human body and he veiled himself so that when we looked at him, he looked just like any man. And he chose to be born naked in a feeding trough as a baby, surrounded not by angels now, but by animals. This descent downward is incredible. Now listen, I know that we've just said a lot, right? That, that was a mouthful, right? Look, let's, let's see if we can just go to a different passage of Scripture for a moment where Jesus is actually going to act this out for us. Jesus is going to act it out. It's, it's in an unlikely place, but it's in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper. And I hope that you appreciate this passage as much as, as I did because when I, I read it, I was, I was amazed. Here's what it says. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Now... Before the feast of Passover, 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. I love, I love how he says this. Having loved those who were in the world, he says he loved them to the end. I love how John says that. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, listen to this, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, here's what he did. He rose up from supper. He laid aside his outer garments And taking the towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. You see, Jesus is acting something out here. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So you see, Peter just had to be with Jesus. Let me see if I can kind of set the scene here for us and we can understand what's happening. The Last Supper happens on the night that Jesus was betrayed. It happens on the night before Jesus would go to the cross. His whole life, his whole ministry had been leading up to this very moment. You remember Jesus was constantly saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And here John says that his hour had come. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. Jesus has been heading to the cross. You couldn't stop him from going to the cross because he loved his disciples. He loved them to the end, it says. The Bible says that that Jesus said in in Luke 7, it said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you because he knew that they would not eat together again as a family until they ate it together in the kingdom of heaven at the Last Supper. And so there's been great preparation taken for this dinner. They're in the upper room. All of the preparations are made. There's a platform here. Jesus is seated at the position of honor on this platform. The lamb has been roasted. It's on the table. The red wine is in the cup. There's a smell of of fresh baked bread in the air. There's a little tension in the room, though, too, because Judas is there, and Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him, but he also knows that the Father has given all things into his hand, and so he's not worried about that, and so he just continues. And when it says that he knew that, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, and he knew what he was about to do the next day to go to the cross and pay for the sins of the world, here's what he did. He rose up from supper. He takes off his outer garment. He disrobes himself of his glory. Then he steps down off the platform from heaven to earth, He comes down, he comes over and he grabs a pitcher of water and a basin to wash people's feet and he takes a towel of a servant like he's putting on humanity and he wraps it around his waist, takes the form of a servant and he sits down 
to wash the disciples' feet. Let me tell you something. The guest of honor would never sit down and wash anyone's feet. That was not something that they would do in the culture. But you see, Jesus realized how far he was willing to humble himself. George, don't worry, man. I'm not going to wash your feet, man. This is just here for show. <laughs> Love you, man. But isn't it amazing, you guys, just to think about the extent to which Jesus went to save us, the, the extent that he was willing to come and to humble himself? Pastor Hyden quoted this passage last week, and here's what it says in Mark. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Church, I want you to think about this for a second. The God of the universe came to serve you. Praise the Lord, Peter. Praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Man, is that the understatement of the century or what? Right? You're the God of the universe. You own everything. The cattle on a thousand hills, they're all his. And, 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 and what happened? Yet, for your sake, church, walk church, for your sake, he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Man, that is, that is good. That is good. So how does this happen? How am I rich in Christ? Verse 8 in Philippians 2, here's what it says. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This word form shows up a second time here, but it's actually a different word here. Now, it's not the word morphe, right? It's not, it's not his essential nature, but it's the word schema, Right, here's what schema means. It's where we get our word schematic. It means the, the generally recognized state or form in which something appears. It's outward appearance, it's form, or it's shape. It's not saying that Jesus wasn't truly a man because he was, but what it's saying is that when you looked at the God of the universe in human flesh, you just looked like me and you. That's all he looked like. That's what it's saying. That's what it's saying here. And let, let me see if I can put it in, 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 a term, in terms that we would really understand. I'm a human being. Right? That's my essential nature. That's who I am. But when I was a baby, when I was born, I looked like a baby. That was my schema. Right? And then I became a teenager, and that was my schema, and now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man. And that's what I look like. But my essential nature is that I'm a human being. You know, when we look at um, the book of Isaiah, we, we read this morning Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and there's all these amazing prophecies about who the Messiah would be, right? He, he would be, one of his names would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us, right? These majestic titles of Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, right? The prince of peace, the everlasting father, all of these amazing titles. And so we're expecting greatness as we should, but there's another prophecy hidden here in Isaiah chapter 53, and here's what it says, talking about the Messiah, what he would be like. It says this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He just looked like any first century rabbi. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Church, are, are, are you suffering this morning? Are you familiar with pain? Man, I just want to encourage you this morning that the Savior knows it. Yeah. 
He's familiar with it. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. He took it upon himself. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Nails went through his hands and his feet. A spear went through his side. Why? Because of our transgressions. Transgressions is a word that means you know the line you're not supposed to cross it, and you cross it. Right? It's sin. Right? He was crushed. That's a tough word. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's another way to say for our sin. The punishment, Jesus was punished on the cross. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Right? Some, some, some uh, versions say, by his stripes. And we think about it wasn't just the cross, but he was whipped with, with the cat of nine tails. He bled before he ever even made it to the cross. And the punishment that was, that was on him brought us peace. Wow. Man, you see, only God could satisfy the requirements of a holy God. But at the same time, only a man could pay for the sins of a man. You see, and so these two natures were joined together in the one person in Jesus Christ, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. Mm, man, that is good. Friends, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world so that the world might be saved through him, but it came at a great cost and a great expense. He was born in a trough with the cross on the horizon. He was born in Bethlehem with Golgotha in view. The reason that he came to be born was so that he could go and he could die for you. He came from heaven to humanity to the form of a servant, to death, but death on a cross. Wow, man. Death on a cross demonstrates just how much he loved us, the extent to, to which he was willing to go to save us. The fact that he was obedient to the Father to the point of death demonstrates the extent to which he was willing to be obedient. Now listen, crucifixion was reserved only for the worst of criminals. If you were a Roman citizen, they weren't even allowed to crucify you because it was too harsh and too brutal. Crucifixion was, was reserved for enemies of the state or for aliens, right? The, the people who weren't from Israel. How amazing is it then that the exalted and honored second person of the eternal Godhead was willing to be publicly beaten, whipped, spit upon, stripped naked, humiliated, and to be nailed to a cross. Mm. And he died in excruciating and agonizing death. So why did he do this? Why would he do this? It's because he loved us, right? So, so let's, let's take a moment here. And let's, let's just take a moment and, and point number two. Let's celebrate the joy of Christmas by appreciating what it accomplished. Keep your fingers in Philippians chapter 2 and turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Uh, the Walk Church staff has been memorizing the, the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. It's an incredible chapter. I, I highly recommend reading it and, and maybe even memorizing it if you can, especially the first 12 verses. But you see, before Jesus came, here, here was our condition. Here's what the Bible says we were. The Bible says this, we were condemned. To be condemned means that, that there had been a guilty judgment pronounced over your life and that there was a punishment that would follow. That was the state of all of us before Jesus came. It says that we were enemies of God. 
It says that we had no access into his presence, and it said that we had no hope in the world and that our relationship with God was broken. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, right? Justified, that's a great word. You know what justified means? Justified is the exact opposite of condemnation. To be condemned means that you're guilty and there's punishment. To be justified means that there is a not guilty pronouncement judged over your life and that all punishment has been removed. How does that happen? It happens by faith in Jesus, right? It says we have peace with God. That's a great word. We were enemies. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he came to save us. Through him we have also obtained, as if that wasn't enough, <laughs> we have also obtained access now, no longer banished from his presence, but now we have access into his throne room, access to his presence by faith into this grace Another great word here, this, this means that it, salvation is a gift. We have access to God and peace with God because he gave it to us as a gift because what Jesus Christ has done. It says we stand in that grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, we no longer have a fearful relationship with God. We're not afraid of God if Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Instead, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then verse 11 says this. It says more than that, as if that wasn't enough, right? And I skipped about nine verses. It says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That broken relationship that we had with God has now been reconciled because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Right? Reconciliation is a family word. When you have a, a relationship with a family member that's not right, it needs to be reconciled. And that's what the Bible says that Jesus did for us. We now have reconciliation. And still in Romans 5, go ahead and turn back to Romans chapter 2, point number 3. We're almost done. Let's do this. Let's note how it was rewarded. Let's consider what it cost, appreciate what it accomplished, and let's note how it was rewarded. Verse 9 through 11 says this, Philippians chapter 2. It says, therefore. Therefore, what, what, do we, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it's therefore because God who existed in the form of God, became a man, was obedient to death, death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been highly exalted. You remember on the same night, that Jesus ate the Last Supper. After they were done, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, it's not my will, but your will be done. And when he, when he knew that there was no other way and that he was going to the cross, here's what he prayed. He said, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Jesus Christ has been exalted. And you know what God said to that prayer? He said, oh, I'm, I'm going to do better than that. He said, I'm going to do better than that. I'm not just going to exalt you. I'm just not going to glorify you with the glory that you had with me before the world was. I'm going to highly exalt you. I'm going to hyper exalt you. Literally, the Greek says, hyper exalt you. And I'm going to give you the name that is above every name. And by the way, every single knee of every single person who has ever lived in the history of mankind, every person who is now living, every person in this room, every person who will ever live in the history of the world will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Their knees will hit the ground and they will say, Jesus 
Christ is Lord. Amen. And let me tell you something. When the knees hit the ground and those words come out of everyone's mouth, the Bible says that they do it to the glory of God the Father. That makes God happy. And let me tell you this, church. I, I, I do this now with joy in my heart. I know that every single knee is going to bow. We are invited now to bow the knee to Jesus Christ willfully. We can do it now. We can do it now with joy in our hearts. We can say from our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can say it now. That, that We can say that to the glory of God the Father. Now listen, in Jesus' humiliation, that he was willing to humble himself like that, this is the reward. He was highly exalted. And I just want us to understand this morning that that is the pattern of Scripture. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Right? Because that was Jesus' example to us. Jesus said this himself. The God of the universe in human flesh says these words in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Wow, I I love that. I love that. And and here's here's Paul's instructions to us. He says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. How can we apply that to our lives today, church? Well, one thing that we can do is we can consider the needs of other people as more important than our own. Right? That's what Jesus did. We can serve one another. You know, we can serve in the church. We can serve each other. We can take each other out for lunch. We can care for one another. Right? We humble ourselves in order to lift someone else up. And when we do that, you know what happens? God himself lifts us up. Jesus has returned to heaven. He has returned to glory. He's back in the White House. He's flying on Air Force One again. And guess what, church? He's coming back again. But he's not coming back again in humiliation. The Bible says that this time he's coming back in great power and great glory. Think back to John chapter 13 now at the Last Supper. After he had washed their feet, listen to what Jesus does. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. (laughs) Can you believe that? He washes their, their feet He says he puts on his outer garments again. He resumes his place in the position of honor on the platform at the table. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand? He puts his glory back on. He takes all of the divine rights and privileges that come with being God and he embraces them again. They are his. They are his by nature. Church, do you understand what Jesus has done to you? We are here celebrating the joy of Christmas this morning. We are here celebrating the fact that Jesus washed away our sins with his own blood. Listen, we should celebrate that. We should have great joy over that fact this morning. Church, let that sink in. I hope that you you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that that really is the story of your life. I hope that you believe in Jesus. And I hope that, that, that the you... And John 13 can be the you here at Walk Church this morning. And here's what it takes. The Bible says in John 3.16 that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says, Jesus actually says these words. He says, 
the one who comes to me, whoever it is, I will by no means cast out. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. There's no excuse that you can give God this morning that would impress him. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's pray.